Now, uh, this evening, I want to share with you a lesson that I think can help you, perhaps, in your studies with others and in your own personal studies. The title is, Why I Am a Member of the Church of Christ. Now, let me say in advance, uh, before we proceed, I will be calling uh, and mentioning names of other religious groups, but I'm not doing this uh, to be derogatory or insulting. What we're going to do is try to explain some of the history, uh, church history. And as you see this lesson develop, you'll understand why uh, I'm presenting it this way. And you'll know there's no malice or ill intention in my heart toward anyone. Uh, let me explain to you a couple of reasons why I want to preach this lesson and why I have preached this lesson enjoy preaching this lesson. Uh, my great-grandfather was an ordained Baptist preacher, and my grandfather was what they called a lay preacher in the Baptist church. Now, that was on my father's side. Now, on my mother's side, going back to my great-grandparents, they were uh, members of the Lord's church, members of the Church of Christ in Perry County, Tennessee. And so my father's family, being from Georgia originally, matter of fact, my great-great-grandfather uh, was an Irwin who fought at the Battle of Chickamauga and was uh, actually with, uh, with uh, General Longstreet as they laid uh, siege to Chattanooga. General Longstreet said, I can't have Braxton Bragg anymore. And he took his men and went to uh, Fort Sanders and then rejoined the Army of Northern Virginia. But anyway, so uh, his name was John Miller Irwin. And uh, he settled eventually in Weekly County, Tennessee, and my mother and father met at the University of Tennessee at Martin. And so uh, that's how these two families came together. Well, at a very young age, I had uh, my grandfather, who I loved dearly, and was very much a diehard Baptist and was very persuasive in the things that he would say. And then I had my grandmother Bates on my mother's side, whom I love very dearly, and she was a thoroughgoing member of the Churches of Christ. And she, too, was very persuasive in the things that she said. So as a young boy, I was uh, looking at the two groups and wondering, well, now, which is right? Are they both right? Does it matter? And uh, it helped me in my studies from a young age to study things comparatively speaking. Take what you uh, are hearing, what you're learning, what you know, compare it with other. Take the things that you know are true, compare them with things that another person is saying is true, and see if what you believe to be true can uh, pass the test of scrutiny. Now, we come to the scriptures and we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, prove all things, right? And hold fast to that which is good. We read also in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and to be ready to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is in us. And we're to do that with meekness and fear. Now, that's the second reason I like this lesson. Uh, it's a way that we can prepare ourselves to give an answer. If someone were to ask you, why are you a member of the White Oak Church of Christ, or why are you a member of the Churches of Christ, what would you say? How would you answer them? 
A lot of times when we ask a person what they are religious, why they are what they are religiously speaking, they may say, well, that's what my mom and my daddy was. They may say, uh, well, I, I like that church, good people there. They may say, um, well, I began going there with friends back years ago. They may say, well, I don't know, I like the music or I like the preacher a lot of times. So uh, what would you say? What would you say? Well, I have four reasons. If you were to ask me, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? And so these are the four things that I want to share with you tonight. In the first place, because of the study of the Scriptures. The study of the Scriptures at a very early age, and especially as I began to mature, about 20, 22 years old, I could really begin to understand what granddaddy was saying and what grandma was saying. And I was able to, to I guess, to deduce better than, of course, I was at 12 or 13. But the study of the scriptures. Now, what does the Bible tell us about the establishment of the Lord's church? Okay, Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus says, concerning the confession that Peter made, that he was the Christ, the Son of God. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. So this church, the church that we read about in the New Testament, was going to be built by Christ. So we learn that fact. Uh, therefore, it was not, and those words were spoken after John the Baptist was beheaded. So obviously the church wasn't established by John the Baptist or during the days of John the Baptist because after the death of John the Baptist, Jesus spoke in a future tense when he said, I will build my church. All right, so as we proceed in this then, we look to Scripture for more evidence of when this church would be built, where it would be built, and how it would be built. When, where, and how? Well, when is answered in Daniel 2.44. He said, During the days of these kings, the God of heaven shall establish a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces and consume all the nations of the earth, all nations would flow unto it. Now, what is this kingdom? Well, the writer of Hebrews said, you have come to the church of the firstborn, the assembly uh, in heaven, uh, the kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us receive it with uh, grace and godly fear, uh, with reverence and godly fear. Now, Hebrews 12 and I think it's about verse 25. He says, you've come unto Zion, the church of the firstborn. And wherefore, verse 28, wherefore having received a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So sometime between Jesus' words in Matthew 16 and sometime in between the writing of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, that kingdom was established during the days of these kings. Now, who are these kings? Well, it's the fourth kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. As you track that down, you'll see the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. You'll see the breastplate of uh, Bryas was uh, the Medo-Persian alliance. And then you have the uh, legs, which were Alexander the Great's uh, Grecian Empire. And then you have uh, the feet of clay, the miry uh, mingled uh, feet of clay, the fourth kingdom. You have Babylon, the Medo-Persian alliance, Alexander the Great's Greek Empire, 
and you have uh, uh, Caesar's Rome, the fourth kingdom. During the days of these kings shall the God of heaven establish a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. During the days of the Roman Empire, the churches of Christ were established. Okay, when then? Specifically. Oh, we have to answer that second question, the question of where. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus tells us how that the kingdom would come before those disciples would ever taste death and that it would come with power. And in Acts 1.8, he tells us that power would come via the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 2, 1 to 4, we read of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost to empower those apostles. We read in Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, how that the law would go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How that the mountain of the Lord's house should be established on top of the hills, it shall be exalted and very high, and all nations shall flow unto it. Well, the Lord's house is his church. We learn how we are to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth, right? First Timothy 3.15. So you have Isaiah 2 pointing to Acts 2. You have Daniel 2 pointing to Acts 2. And you have Joel 2 where he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Peter said the things you see and hear, oh, we're not drunken men. We're not full of new wine as you suspect. Know this that you see and hear, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes verbatim from Joel 2. So you have Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, and Joel 2 all pointing to Acts 2. Now that's easy enough to remember, isn't it? Just remember 2 and you're almost there. Isaiah 2 tells us it's Jerusalem. Daniel 2 tells us it's in the days of the Roman Empire. And Joel 2 tells us how it is with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You've got the when, the where, the how. When, during the days of Rome, where, at Jerusalem, how with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, any church ever established at any point, anywhere in the history of the world other than on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is not the same church. Not the church that you read about in the Bible. Now let me make a point very clear. What we'll study tonight and what you'll see is that there are many uh, religious groups and then the New Testament reveals to us one religious group. And as you compare the two, you'll see, yes, both are religious groups, but they are not the same religious group. And then, of course, the question will be, now, which should I follow? What should I do with my soul? The study of scriptures teaches when, where, and how the church began. The study of scriptures, and we could just go into this in depth, we just don't have time. We're prohibited. But the study of the scriptures tell us how the church is to be organized with elders and deacons. Tells us that uh, women are forbidden from preaching. First Timothy chapter 2. Why do you have men preachers and not women preachers? Study First Timothy 2. Study First Corinthians 14. And you've got those answers. What, who is qualified to serve as an elder? Study 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. Who's qualified to serve as a deacon? 
Why don't you have women deacons in the churches of Christ? Well, 1 Timothy 3 tells us a deacon's to be the husband of one wife. And if you've got a woman that's a husband of one wife, folks, you've got bigger problems than who's going to be your deacon in the church. <laughs> and the time that we're living in, who's to say that that's not coming, unfortunately? So you see, uh, well, why do you not worship with mechanical instruments and music? Well, the New Testament, the church worshiped by singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart unto the Lord. Now, in a moment, we'll come to the study of church history. As a matter of fact, we could do that now. Do you realize that there wasn't any mechanical instrument of worship at all introduced in any form of Christian worship until 666 or 667 A.D.? 630 some odd years after the church began. Now, Jesus told the apostles the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth, John 16, 13. If the apostles were guided into all truth and instrumental music and worship is true, why didn't the apostles mention it? Why did it take 630 years for somebody to do it? Hmm. So old Andy gets to thinking to himself, self, something there just isn't adding up. Now, I love my granddaddy dearly. Oh, and I know the night he died, December the 28th, 1999, when Peter went out and wept bitterly, I learned what that meant that night. Came to his home to open his back door and walk in and I expected to hear his voice and it would never be heard again. Friends, that will break your heart when you're a young man and that's your granddaddy. Ah, uh, there's no malice in my heart toward him whatsoever. But as I began to compare, I had to say, I will choose to serve God rather than man, even if that man is a man I love very much. That's just the choice we have to make sometimes, isn't it? Now, as we continue in this study, the study of scriptures. Andy, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? Because if I want to know about this church, I can find out where it began, when it began, how it began in God's Word. I can find out what it's called. I can find out how it's organized. I can find out the gospel we preach. I can find out how we worship, when we worship. I can find all of that right here. But you know what I can't find? Now, here's where I'm going to call some names. And again, no malice involved, just stating facts. But I can't find Methodist. I can't. I can't open the Bible and find that name. Now, I'm telling you, as a young man at 20 years old, I was opening this and I couldn't find Baptist. Now, I could find that John was the Baptist, but he was not a Baptist. He was the immerser. But he wasn't a member of a denomination by that name. I couldn't find Episcopal. I couldn't find uh, Pentecostal or Presbyterian, Jehovah's Witness, Catholic. I couldn't find any of those. Well, where do they come from then? So here's point number two. Andy, why are you a member of the Lord's Church? Because of the study of church history. The study of the Bible, point number one. Point number two, because the study of church history. And the study of church history brought me to um, a realization of how these things came about. And I said a little bit of this this morning. But it began with the idea that every eldership needs to have a presiding elder. And that was, it was actually called a presiding bishop. 
there are three terms for a bishop uh, in the New Testament, or four really. You have an overseer, bishop, elder, or pastor. But they all refer to the same office of a shepherd overseeing the flock. A uh, shepherd would even be a fifth. Peter uses that term concerning the shepherd of your souls, Jesus. Now, this got out of hand in the second century, in the third century. And what you ended up, you had five cities where presiding elders claimed to have authority over all the churches in that area. And they were Jerusalem, Constantinople, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch of Syria. Okay? Jerusalem, I, I don't know if you're keeping notes, but Jerusalem and Antioch of Syria over here on the Mediterranean coastline, Alexandria, North Africa, Constantinople way up here in modern-day Turkey, and Rome. Well, the bishop of Rome said, I want to be the presiding bishop over all the presiding bishops. I'm here seated in the city, the capital city of our empire, and I need to have some authority. Well, they came up with the idea of apostolic succession to try to get that pushed across. You can never prove Peter was ever even in Rome. But they tried to because they wanted desperately to show that Peter was the first pope and then therefore every bishop of Rome is going to be the head over the church. It was all just a man-made, made-up doctrine. It's just, it's just fiction is all it is. I'm just telling you what it is. It's fiction. There's no Bible to it. You open this book, you'll never read the word Pope. And you'll certainly never find where Peter was called a Pope. Not there. It's all just made up. I'm sorry. That's what it is. It's made up stuff. Well, the presiding bishop at Constantinople said, No, I don't think so. Don't you know we're the new boy in town? This uh, the empire has gravitated over here to the east. It's no longer centered in Rome, but here in Constantinople. We're even named after the fella, Constantine. And so there was a division. And so when you hear about uh, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, those churches in the east began to call themselves Orthodox. In English, that's what we would call them, Orthodox. And in the west, they were known as Catholic. Well then, that clicked along for about five, six centuries until you had Catholic priests who began to question and wonder. And then a couple of more centuries go by and some men in England, Catholics, started wanting the Bible to be written in English and they said, no, that's an unholy foul language. That's a vulgar tongue. We need to keep it in Latin. Well, only a few people knew Latin. And so Wycliffe, they dug his remains up, burned them, strode them into a river. William Tyndall, they tied him to a stake, they suffocated him, and then they burned him. What did he do? What was his great crime? He translated the Bible, the New Testament, into English. Martin Luther was a German monk who nailed 99 theses to the church house door in Wittenberg, Germany, protesting the sale of indulgences. You see, they wanted some money coming in. So what do they do? They say, okay, listen, your loved one right now, they made up a, a place called purgatory. Purgatory is never found in the Bible. They just made it up. And they said, okay, 
You die, you've got to go to purgatory, and you've got to be punished for your sins. Now wait just a minute. The Bible tells me that if I walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship one with another, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. So then why do I need to go to purgatory if I'm already forgiven of all sin? You see, something here not adding up, is it? They say, you know what you can do? You can make a donation, and as soon as your coin hits the copper, that soul will fly from purgatory. Oh, they raised a lot of money that way. And then they said, oh, and better yet, you know what else you can do? Just in case nobody's there to pay for you and get you out of jail early, you can make a down payment on that right now. And so while uh, they'd come along and they'd get some guy like Ron to say, well, here's a check for me, my wife, my children, that just covers us for the next six generations. And the problem is that fellow would then go out and live however he wanted to live. The sale of indulgences. Luther said, wait a minute, this is not right. And so he began to protest it, but he was wanting to reform the Catholic Church. Luther was never intent on going back to the New Testament and restoring New Testament Christianity, but reforming what was. Calvin came along. He said, you guys, you're, you have departed from the teachings of our church father, Augustine, or Augustine. I don't know which is the correct. I say Augustine, but some say Augustine. North Alexander and philosopher turned Christian, so-called. He said, you've departed. So he took Augustine's uh, book and he recreated that book in a book that uh, is, uh, is still around today, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But it's just Augustine, over and over again, Augustine. And Calvin was 26 years old at the time. And Calvin says, see, here's a church father, and y'all aren't following what this church father said. And we need to get back to this church father. Well, that's not really enough either, is it? Augustine doesn't go back far enough. What Calvin really should have been saying is we need to get back to Paul and Peter and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then you come into England, and you've got a king by the name of Henry VIII, I am, I am. And he wants to divorce his wife. And the Pope says no. So he says, all right, I'm going to start my own church. And so he started the Church of England called the Anglican Church as well. And the Scottish people are a proud people. And they said, why should we go along with the Church of England? We want our own. We're going to call it the Church of Scotland. Well, those aren't very popular terms in the colonies, especially with taxation without representation and the Revolutionary War and certain other things. So they're called, in America, Episcopal and Presbyterian. Okay? Now again, you notice I'm not saying any of this to put anybody down. I'm just telling you these are how these things came about. There was an English man by the name of John Smythe who said, you know, you guys are still sprinkling. We need to be immersing. The Bible teaches immersion. And so he began a group that was called the Baptists because immersion was their, their main difference. So every time a new group happened, here's two things that happened. They needed a new creed and a new name. 
So anytime a new denomination emerged, they would sit down and write their own creed. That's where you hear Westminster Confession of Faith and these different things. And then you would have a new name given. All right, John Wesley was a member of the Church of England. He said, ah, guys, we're losing our holiness. And his brother Charles said, we're, we're becoming formal and ritualistic, and we need to stop this. We need to just get back to being more pious and more reverent and more holy in our... And he's right, you know, sure he is. But again, Wesley didn't go far enough back, did he? But his followers began to call themselves Wesleyans and Methodists and that kind of thing. All right, now here's what I want you to do. Take you sometime a blank sheet of paper and just draw your line right down the middle and put on the right hand or left hand side, whichever, just write whatever the church name that you want to write. And you can look it up on the internet. There's a book that helped me more than any as a young man trying to figure all this out. It's called Traditions of Men Versus the Word of God. Alvin Jennings wrote it. It's a little paperback. It doesn't cost you 2 or $3. The Traditions of Men Versus the Word of God. It may even be in the church library. I don't know. It may be. It'd be worth checking out and seeing. But just put your line on a sheet of paper and you say, okay, when did this church begin? Just put whatever the name is. Began here, began here. Okay, here's when, here's where, here's how, here's their creed, here's this, that. And then do my, yourself a favor and go to the Bible and see when this church began. Now there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's what the Bible says. Where did this body begin? When did it begin? How did it begin? And you'll see two things here. You'll see that both of them are religious groups. But you'll see they're not the same religious group. Which brings me to point number three. Andy, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? Now this point only takes about an hour to get through. Where's that coffee? <laughs> All right. Andy, why are you a member of the church? Because I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. You see, after drawing this down the middle and I'm putting on one side this church and another side the church of the Bible and I'm realizing, yes, they're both churches but they're not the same church and I want to be saved, who am I going to follow? Am I going to follow the Bible or am I going to follow the doctrines and commandments of men? Look, just, just turn with me here to Matthew 15. Let's look at what the doctrines and commandments of men will do for you. It's interesting. If you want to keep in that same comparative type study, if you'll draw you a line down a sheet of paper and on one top of one column put traditions of men and on top of the other column put word of God. Now notice here what the traditions of men will do for you, Matthew chapter 15. This is the Pharisees keeping the traditions of the elders. Notice verse 3. Why do you also, here's point number one, transgress the commandment of God by your tradition. What will the traditions of men do for you? They'll cause you to transgress God's word. All right, continue reading. Verse six, you have made the last part of the verse. You have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. What will they do for you? They'll make the word of God of no effect. How does that happen, Andy? Because people will choose the word of man over the word of God. They will. It happens. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. These, the, the elders, the tradition of the elders, that was called the holocaust. 
H-A-L-A-K-H, A-H, H-A-L-A-K-A-H, the halakha, halakha, the way the Jews pronounce it. It was an oral tradition. It was handed down during the 400 silent years. It really picked up traction. I'm talking about between Malachi and Matthew, those 400 years. And what happened by the time of Jesus, whenever there was a religious question, the Pharisees would say, no, this is what the elders say. They didn't say this is what Moses said. They said this is what the elders said. So the word of the elders superseded the word of, the, of Moses. The written word of God was supplanted by the spoken word of the elders. The Catholic Church does the same thing. They call theirs the magisterium. And it's whatever they speak, whatever the Pope speaks on his throne or whatever they dictate or mandate to the church supersedes the written word of God in the New Testament. They're doing exactly the same thing with the New Testament that the Jews did, that the Pharisees did with the Old Testament. One called theirs the Holocaust, the other calls it the Magisterium, but it's the same principle. Notice as you continue reading, it'll turn you into a hypocrite. Verse 7. Notice verse 8, it'll cause you to draw nigh with your mouth, honor with your lip, but your heart will be far from God. Verse 9, it'll bring about vain worship. Vain worship. Now go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 on the other side of your column under the word of God. And let's just see what the word of God will do for you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16 and verse 17. Actually, let's start in verse 15. It'll make you wise unto salvation. It is given by the inspiration of God. Notice what it's profitable for. For doctrine, reproof, correction. Anybody ever need correcting? Sure we do. And you know what? God loves those whom he corrects. He corrects those whom he loves. Hebrews 12. The correction of the Lord is not a bad thing. All right, notice instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible right here, all truth, profitable for all good works. You want to know how to serve God? It's right here. It's right there. Search the scriptures. Study to show yourself approved. It's right there. The word of life, the word of truth, the book divine, it will take you from this world to, to heaven, take you from this world to a home that's better than this, take you from sickness, take you from death to eternal happiness, eternal life. No more sorrow, no more parting, no more pain, no more suffering, no more dying, no more separation. Basking in the light of God's redeeming love while ceaseless ages roll forever and ever. Surrounded by loved ones and faithful from ages gone by and ages even to come. What, what can, what's that road map? What can take me from here to there? This and only this. What if a man tried to duplicate the Bible? Well, I'm going to tell you this. In a, let's say in a creed book, if he had one verse less than the New Testament, he's got one verse too, too few. If he's got one verse more than the New Testament, he's got one verse too many. All you need's right here. Right there. 
And Paul wrote these things so that we might not go beyond that which is written. Yes, sir. Why are you a member of the church, Andy? Because I want to be saved. Jesus says in John 12, 48, He that rejects me and does not receive my word has one that will judge him. For the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. When I stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment day, he's going to open his book and he's going to ask me, Andy, why didn't you do it? He's either going to say, depart, I never knew you, or come, you blessed, enter into the kingdom. And it's all going to be based upon this word right here. He's not going to open up a book of discipline or the Westminster Confession of Faith or something else. He's going to open up his word. The word that I spoke, the same shall judge you on the last day. All right, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. To who? To all them that obey him. If I want to be saved, I've got to obey Jesus. And why are you a member of the church? Because I want to be saved. The study of the scriptures teach me of one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. That's all it ever teaches me about. And so then I get to thinking, well, where do all these other groups come from? Where do they come from? I want to know. Well, the study of church history teaches me where they came from. So I begin to decide, okay, look, there's two different groups I'm studying here. And they're both religious groups, but they're not the same religious group. One I can read about in the scriptures. The other I have to go to external sources to find. But I sure want to be saved. And I can read where Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I can read where the Bible says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I think I'm going to go with this book. Now, in that conversation, I would say, Granddaddy, I love you. But if it's not there, I'm not doing it. I've got to go with the one who died for me. He's my Lord and Master. Point number four. Andy, why are you a member of the church? Because I want to save others. It's not enough for me to be saved. It's really not. It's not enough for any of us to be saved individually. We want to save everybody we can. So how do we do that? Okay, 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul said to Timothy, Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. And in so doing, you will both save yourself and them that hear thee. So if I want to save your soul, if I want to have a part in that, if I want to sit someday beneath the shade of the tree of life and talk about the time that we spent together, how can I do that? Except by taking you to the Bible and showing you what the Word of God says. I can't replace it with anything else. Nothing else even compares to it. I can't, I can't replace it with my opinion. The way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10, 23. I can't do that. 
I can't tell you anything but what Jesus said. Why? Because he is the one with all authority. And if he has all authority, guess how much authority that leaves me? Zilch. He has all authority. So all I can do, you know what I am? I'm the little Western Union messenger boy. And I'm just delivering the message. That's all I am. Jesus is the one who gives the message. And all we can do is say, this is what the Bible says. And friends, that's really, what does the Bible say? Truthfully, that's the first question we should ask. That's the last question we should ask. That's the only question we should ask. That's the only one that matters. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And you know, it really does simplify things in life, doesn't it? When you live that way, according to that, that creed, if you will, that, that personal mission statement, what does the Bible say? That's all that matters. When you live according to that, it really simplifies things. You watch the news and you see all the silliness that goes on and all the meanness and all the hurt that is in this world. And yet you say, my, if they only would follow the Bible. Just think for a moment how different this world would be if we just loved each other as we love ourselves. Think how many marriages could be saved if we forgave each other 70 times 7. Sure does simplify things, doesn't it? Makes life much more blessed. Oh, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I can answer that question. Andy, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? Because that's what the Bible teaches. And because of the study of church history, I have learned where these other groups come from. I want to be saved, and so I'm going to go with what the Bible says. And I sure want to help you to be saved. And so I'll teach you what the Bible says. And so if you said or asked me, Andy, what must I do to be saved? I just open the Bible to those passages and show you where that was asked and answered in the scriptures. And we find that they heard the gospel and they believed it, that they repented of their sins. They were all making confession of their faith in Christ. And upon their belief, repentance, and confession, they were baptized. They were immersed in water. And when they were immersed in water, their sins were washed away. That's what happened in the New Testament times. And the mourner's bench and sinner's prayer and all of those things, expressions like outward sign of an inward grace and so forth, you don't find any of that here. That came along centuries later. Just search. Get a concordance that has every word of the Bible in it. You'll never read sinner's prayer. You'll never find it here. You'll never read about a mourner's bench. You'll never read about an outward working of an inward grace or direct operation of the Holy Spirit. None of those things are here. What you have are people who had full free will to decide, what am I going to do with my life? And they asked a gospel preacher a question, what must I do to be saved? And a gospel preacher told them the gospel answer. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And when they did that, the Lord took them from the kingdom of darkness and added them to the kingdom of his dear son. And he adds to the church daily those who are being saved ever since. 
And if you want to be saved, that's what you must do. The same thing they did on the day of Pentecost, the same thing they did at the household of Cornelius, the same thing they've done ever since. Anytime a person has been added to the church, it's been because they obeyed the gospel plan of salvation that you read about in the Bible. Now, if you want to know how to be a member of a denomination, go get their creed book and read it. And it'll lead you right into that denomination. But if you want to know how to be a member of the churches of Christ, go get the New Testament and read it. And it'll take you right to it. I hope this has helped you tonight. If there's anyone, this is probably my favorite invitation song. I hope me standing up here next to you doesn't ruin it. But it's a good one. Lord, I'm coming home. There's a lot of tenderness in this song. A lot of emotion in this song. Usually when I preach the prodigal son, this is the song that I want for the invitation song. I've wandered far away from home, but now I'm coming home. It could be that you've wandered in your life. Well, while there is breath in your body and light in your soul, you can come home again. And we hope and pray that you will tonight. While together we stand and while we sing.